Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Murder Mile. Today, I'm standing on Frith Street in Soho W1. One street north of the Taj Mahal killing. A few doors south of the five shilling strip tees. The same building as the last failed erection by the Blackout Ripper. And a few doors down from the shopkeeper who sold more than bacon. Coming soon to Murder Mile. At 47 Frith Street, currently stands Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club, a musical institution where nightly swarms of hipsters form, wearing cravats, bow ties, monocles, feather bows, and top hats. As nothing says, I've no personality, like dressing like a Victorian street urchin at a Mardi Gras and where they hope to hear some nice jazz. Like, you know, something with a recognisable melody. But instead they end up listening to that freeform bollocks, which sounds like an asthmatic stomping a seal pup to death. Back in the 1960s, at 47 Frith Street, was a seedy little strip club called Peeparama where sad losers got their jollies by ogling bored ladies as they jiggled their wobbly bits. One of those ladies was Elaine Baker, a young woman with dreams, who was described as one of the shyest striptease artists I've ever met. And although it looked like she was having fun, behind her painted-on smile lay pain and anger. My name is Michael, I'm your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 232, Finally, A Home. Everybody has a dream. For some... It's something they can achieve by themselves. Whether to paint, to write, or to build a business, where all they need is themselves and belief. Whereas for others, like Elaine, 
her dream of a home, a marriage and several children, required a second person, a husband. Elaine Baker began life as Elaine Barkworth on the 10th of August 1936. She said she knew little about her early life, her family and her upbringing. But maybe her childhood was something she had chosen to forget. Raised in the district of Bucklow in Cheshire, she never spoke of her father. She didn't have a loving relationship with her mother, and as at least one of five siblings, being taken into care when she was only 12, she spent most of her formative years in foster care. Denied love and guidance, as she was bounced between care homes and foster parents owing to her parents' neglect. Although her abandonment had made her incredibly caring and maternal, with a deep desire to be loved and also to give love. Regressing into herself, she became the epitome of shyness. As a short, curvy redhead with pale skin and freckles, she had always looked young and later described as a pathetic little creature. For the price of a kiss, a hug, or a little compassion, she was often easily led. In 1954, when she was 18, her foster mother died. And although legally an adult, no longer being the burden of the council's responsibility, she was out on her own, even though she was still only a child. Described as being of lower-than-average intelligence, owing to inconsistent schooling, she earned her way as a single girl through a series of manual jobs in laundries and hotels. And through necessity, she received three minor convictions, one for the theft of a coat and stockings, one for breach of probation, and the other for using insulting words. She wasn't a bad person, she just lacked trust in other people, and for good reason. Her late teens were riddled with more tragedy than most people could cope with in their lifetime. In 1953, age 17, she lost all contact with her mother and her father she couldn't remember. On the 18th of August, 1955, age 19, she gave birth to a child. But being illegitimate, in an era where a single mother was as sinful as theft, she was forced to give it up for adoption. And on the 14th of May 1956, after just three weeks of unhappy, abusive marriage to Carl G. Baker, yet another dream was shattered. In August 1958, with no family, no home, no children, and no marriage, every part of her fantasy had broken. And being desperate to leave all of her pain behind, she fled to London to start a new life. 
three months later, she would meet Ronnie, the man of her dreams. As a shy and certain girl, it took real courage to come out from behind her shadow to work as a cinema usherette at the Troxy in East London's Commercial Road. Burdened by a soft voice, a quiet manner, and a pale face which blushed like a little cherry tomato whenever a stranger spoke more than a few words to her. Although far from outgoing, Maybe it was her childlike qualities which lured Ronnie towards her. Three years her junior, 20-year-old Ronald Leonard Cross was born and raised in London. As a six-foot, three-inch hunk of loveliness, with a boyish face, a mop of dark hair, and a big beaming smile, although he towered over this tiny redhead, Elaine was instantly smitten. Seeing him as marriage material, they moved in together, and with him earning three times her wage as he was a labourer, life looked promising. Elaine would state, For six or seven months, we lived together as man and wife. Unable to afford much, at the start of March, they moved into a small basement room in a shared lodging at 19 Tradiga Square in Bow. And although it was basic, it was their home. Barely 10 feet square, and with not even enough space to swing the proverbial cat. Although their bed sitting room was a little pokey, it had everything this young couple needed. A sofa which folded out into a bed. A radio to play their records on. A decent-sized wardrobe for all of their clothes. And even two porcelain cats to make it look nice. It was the start of something special for Elaine. Finally, she had a home. With a job that she liked. A man who she loved. And having come from nothing... There was talk of the things she dreamed of the most. A happy marriage, many babies, and a life of unbridled happiness. Her dream had finally come true. And yet, once again, it would end in tragedy. It made sense that Ronnie paid the lion's share for the bills. But as a bone-idle dawdler, who despised the daily grind, and would rather spaff his cash up the wall by seeing his pals and quaffing pints. I used to get annoyed, Elaine would state, because Ron wouldn't go out to work. In short, he couldn't be asked. In court, the judge described Ronnie as a worthless creature who treated her like an oriental chattel. With the Troxy on its final year as a cinema, shifts were short, and with there being few jobs that she could do, 
We had one or two arguments about this, she said. But we always made up afterwards. It was then that instead of agreeing to get off his ass and to earn an honest living as any prospective husband with half a brain cell and even an ounce of love in his heart would do, that he made Elaine an indecent proposal. It wasn't her thing, but it was said that Ronnie had taken her to Freddy's Tropicana Club on Greek Street in Soho. It served drinks, and it played music. Only it wasn't a nightclub, but a striptease. The Tropicana at 11 Greek Street was a seedy little cesspit, hidden under a cheesy cafe and accessed by a set of darklit steps. It led down to a dingy basement, which stunk of bad breath, body odour, stale ciggies, and an unnervingly salty stench which made anyone with a working set of nostrils gag and wretch. As the only female customer, Elaine couldn't help but feel a sickening wave of revulsion wash over her. As a gaggle of perverted little gits, grinning lasciviously as they eyed her tiny body up and down. Only Ronnie hadn't brought her here for fun, but for work. Having nagged incessantly, although a shy girl who blushed uncontrollably and was insecure about her shape, he wanted her to become a stripper. Yes, she would hate it. Yes, she was afraid. And yes, just the thought of it made her feel nauseous. But with it paying £12 a week, three times her minuscule wage as a cinema rocherette, a little bit of saucy nudity would clear their back rent and any unpaid bills until he found work and got back on his feet. That was the plan. It was something she didn't want to do, but for him, she would. And with the Tropicana's owners also running the Peeper Armour on Frith Street, although the manageress said she was the shyest striptease artist there, Elaine's demureness lured in the perverts, who through her fantasized about shy young girls. She started stripping at the start of March. After that, Ronnie didn't work again. Friday the 23rd of April 1960 started out as most days often did, with an argument. Over the past few weeks, as he became lazier and often woke late with a hangover, after a jolly night out with his pals, all paid for by her. As their fights had become more physical, she used makeup to hide the bruises. Three days before, Ronnie had finally got a job laboring on a building site. Elaine would say, 
I set the alarm for 7.30am, but he didn't get up. Having made breakfast, Elaine used a torch to navigate this messy bed sitting room, as the light switch he said he would fix was still broken. And with him, still in bed, as I left at 11.05am, I asked him if he was going to work. He said he was. And as I left our room, I left the door open, thinking that that would help him get up. But as I went up the stairs to head out, he slammed the door shut, and that made me mad. With ten shillings in her purse, she had given him two-thirds to put food in the cupboard, which she hoped that he would do. And although she'd work a 12-hour shift until nearly midnight to earn enough money for them, she rightly guessed that by the time she got back, he'd be drunk. The paper armor at 47 Frith Street was as equally seedy as the Tropicana. Being just shy of Old Compton Street, this side of Soho was surrounded by pubs, brothels, and similarly seedy establishments, which catered for some of the most pathetic losers imaginable, who lived for drinking, leering, and wanking. Like any other striptease, this venue was as erotic as an abattoir. As a parade of bored women, sat behind a foul-smelling curtain, waiting to be ogled like pieces of meat, before a group of drooling deadbeats. For these stars of the show, there was no dressing room, no glamour, and no hints of Hollywood. Just a few stalls, a brimming ashtray, a curtain rail of unwashed slutty outfits that they'd wear for barely a few minutes, a cracked makeup mirror with a single stark bulb overhead, and an overflowing toilet. For Elaine, I learned the job, but I didn't like it. So as the purple curtains were pulled apart, again, like a wound-up automaton, she started to dance. With no stage, just a sticky carpet, a single light which was hardly flattering, and a cheesy track playing in mono through a crackly record player. Surrounded by a semicircle of creaky chairs and sleazy men stifling semis. A sea of leering eyes ate up every inch of her unveiling skin, as with hands in their pockets, they all bobbed up and down to the sexy rhythm. Still painfully shy, as much as she hated it, Elaine did what she needed to do to live and to survive. Like so many others, although her body danced, behind her eyes she was dead. As the second she saw the sad bastards before her, she knew that all she wanted to do was to spit in their faces or to be sick. So as she jiggled her bare breasts, a few feet from several possible rapists. Three things occupied her mind. 
hunger, as having given her boyfriend every penny she had. Only able to afford a sandwich and a cup of tea all day, she was weak and tired, and aware that the audience could hear her rumbling belly. Drugs, as being conscious of her weight, struggling to stay awake, and needing something to soothe her pain and shame. She'd started drinking and taking Prelidin, an appetite suppressant and a stimulant. And finally, there was hope. As still believing that her dream would one day come true, I hoped that Ronnie would get a job and that one day we'd get married. But deep down, she must have known she was lying to herself. As back home, a nightmare awaited her. At midnight, Elaine exited the tube at Bow. Her feet aching after 12 hours, tottering in high heels, dodging kisses and ducking gropes as a butt crack of losers headed home to their wife's cold shoulder. With her cheeks sore from grinning inanely, as she entered the dark silence of Tradiga Square, again her belly rumbled, having barely eaten a thing all day. She hoped that she'd be welcomed home by her husband-to-be with a soft kiss, followed by a nice meal lovingly prepared by him. But it was not to be. When I walked into the kitchen, I saw there was no meal. There were no plates on the table, nothing boiling on the hob, and no food in the cupboard, just a half bag of old potatoes, barely at their best. I went into the front room, which was in darkness, as after weeks of complaining, he hadn't even attempted to fix the light switch. In fact, he'd done nothing. Flicking on her lighter, by its limp orange glow, I saw Ronnie lying on the bed with his clothes on. Him all sprawled out like he'd had a hard day. The stale odour of beer and cigarettes on his breath, and the seven shillings she had given him for food was gone, having blown it all and getting pissed with his pals. I asked him if he'd been to work. He rolled over and said, What's it to you? I said, If I'm working, so should you. Or are you going to start your old tricks again? He then said, I'm sick. I replied, the only thing you're sick with is idleness. He then called me a bloody bastard. And as I turned, he jumped out of bed and we argued. And as he slapped me around the face, I tried to hit him back, but I couldn't reach him. As this six foot three inch hulk towered over the tiny frame of Elaine. She told Detective Superintendent Beale, I walked into the kitchen and went to a drawer and took out a knife. When asked, is this the knife? Showing her a small four-inch blade 
She replied, Yes. I was going to peel some potatoes and make chips. Ronnie came in behind me. I asked him if he wanted any. He said, What do you care if I eat or not? We had words, and he hit me on the nose and the forehead. And as her eyes filled and her nose bled red, knowing this would be another bruise she'd have to hide. As she stood there shaking, she knew that this was what her life had become. There was no dream, only shit. What happened next may never be known, as Elaine's recollection was hazy at best. Initially, she told the police, When I went into the hall, he was lying there, covered in blood. The DS asked, As far as you were aware, you were the only person in the basement with him at that time. So how do you suggest that he was stabbed? A which she replied, I don't know. He might have done it himself. He was always saying he was fed up. As those words stumbled from her fumbling mouth, they all knew it was a lie. As her fingerprints were found on the knife's handle, and his blood had poured down her waist, her legs and her feet. Only it was clear that she was not an evil woman hell-bent on murdering her man. This was just a frightened girl who was in panic and fear, grasping at straws, as the life she had always dreamed of was now over. Later, Elaine would claim that it was an accident. He walked out into the hall and called, Elaine, Elaine. At first, I thought he was fooling. I walked out and saw Ronnie lying on the floor, crouched up and a lot of blood. And I realized I must have stabbed him with a knife. At that point, unsure what to do, Elaine shouted for Michael Malloy, a laborer who lodged in the back room on the ground floor, who had always been very decent to both of them. When questioned, Michael confirmed, I went to sleep and I heard a scream. I thought I was having a nightmare, so I took no notice. A couple of minutes later, I heard Elaine calling me hysterically, and I thought something was wrong. And it was. I found Ronnie lying at the bottom of the stairs on his stomach. I turned him over and saw blood. Elaine was kneeling over him. She was sobbing and calling his name. As blood pooled around Ronnie like a sticky red halo, desperate to stop the bleeding, Michael started searching for a wound. I said, this chap has been stabbed. But at that, she made no comment. (laughs) 
with the ambulance arriving faster than the police. As Elaine got in to accompany Ronnie to hospital, when PC Adams asked, What happened? Again, in panic, she said, I don't know. I didn't see. Not realizing that everything she said and everything she did would be used in evidence against her. With Ronnie gasping for breath, when the ambulance man asked, What happened? She said she didn't know. She said she'd tell him later. And then he was playing with a knife and had an accident. And although they had sped just a short distance to Mile End Hospital, by the time they'd arrived, Dr. Lucas would inform Elaine that Ronnie was dead. Questioned at 1.20 a.m., barely an hour after their fight. Asked to tell the truth, Elaine sobbed, I did it. I was making chips. I had a knife in my hand, and I said, Have you been drinking? He said, Yeah, so what? I'm not going to sit and wait for you every evening. I saw red and struck out with the knife. An autopsy conducted by Dr. F. E. Camps at Poplar Mortuary would confirm he had superficial scratches to his right arm and his upper chest and a single stab wound midway between the nipples which passed between the ribs and embedded four inches deep through the end of the heart and part of one of the valves. And with the scientific officer of the Met Police's laboratory unable to find any trace of alcohol in his blood or his urine, and Elaine having changed her story several times to several witnesses, having started with nothing, now her life was over. Held at Holloway Prison, the medical officer would state she'd shown no evidence of mental illness and had extensive bruising to the left-hand side of her forehead, her upper chest, her upper arms, both thighs and lower legs. And although described as impulsive and emotional, she didn't show any signs of aggression, but she got upset talking about her past. With the press taking pity on her predicament, a nationwide appeal was made to find her parents. And after almost seven years apart, Elaine and her mother Constance were reunited at Holloway Prison. Tried at the Old Bailey on the 21st of May 1960, she pleaded not guilty to the charge of murder owing to provocation. When cross-examined, the Met Police's scientific officer stated that no alcohol was detected because it was destroyed at a rate of three-quarters of a pint per hour. And with the pathologist confirming that, although considerable force had been used to stab him, if at the time the body was moving forward, it doesn't need a great deal of force. It need be no more than a simple push. Implying that if he was moving forward to attack her, 
she could conceivably have stabbed him by mistake, as she had initially thought. Described by the judge as a pathetic creature who was full of remorse for the man she still loved. Three days later, and after three hours of deliberation, a jury of nine men and three women found her not guilty of murder and not guilty of manslaughter. As she was led away to her freedom, when interviewed on the steps of the Old Bailey, she said, I was very much in love. I felt I could reform him. Perhaps then, for the first time in my life, I would have a home. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes. Until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, good. Oh. 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 Oh, o'clock. Hello, everyone. How you doing? How you doing? How you doing? Oh, take your little hat off. There we go. Put that aside. Oh, I'm going to open up a window. Even though it's cold, though, it's bitterly cold. You can tell winter, autumn, all the leaves have come down now. It's really wet and it's really soggy outside. And I wasn't going to have the windows open. Uh, I had to put all the my usual blockades up because there's a prick outside with a little JCB. Oh, it's a nice place where I'm currently moored up. It's very nice. It's very peaceful. I like it here. It's near. It's near a cake shop, although I haven't been in there yet. I'm being good at near a nice little coffee shop. But um, immediately opposite, there's a couple of boats moored up, and there's a guy. He's obsessed absolutely obsessed with getting out he's little he's got one of those tiny little jcbs and he's obsessed all day with driving it around and moving shit he'll 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 get stuff he'll move it from one end to the other and then he'll move it back he just he doesn't seem to do anything all day just does that and then he goes oh oh i need to get my mower out even though i just mowed the other day i'm gonna mow again oh lovely great that seems to be his life so he's i i made it 
three quarters of the way through recording this and then he started up his jcb and i thought oh you shit you utter shit and then i glared at him as he was moving his his it's not even a jcb it's a crappy little tiny it's like it's like a baby jcb it's like it's like it's like it was christmas and mummy had gone oh let's buy you a little jcb that's the kind he's got and he's uh he's moving his shit around but he stopped which was good so i was able to whiz whiz through this and get it done which is good um not gonna make a cup of tea because i'm early today it is it's 11 o'clock i've this was quite an easy episode for me to write. I, I kind of, I think because I kind of really, I liked her and I kind of understood her. So it was kind of easy to write for me. Uh, so I kind of whizzed through it. So normally at this point, I, if I'm doing well, I'd no, normally start recording now. But I finished at 11 o'clock, which means I can walk into the, into town uh, and have, have a nice, uh, a nice cuppa, I think. So I'm going to do that. So I'm not going to make a cup of tea today. Uh, I'm still not on cake. I'm still being good. Although it is Saturday today. Uh, so I will be, I will treat myself to one of those uh, big tubs of vegan ice cream. Very good stuff. Very good stuff. If you little aircraft about to go by, yes, yes, the little pricks, the little businessmen pricks are out today, and there's someone about to go past in their wide beam, and that you can hear the engine gun in it. He's on his phone. He doesn't give a shit. He's not looking where he's going, and my boat is about to go bang. Him. what what a tear what a tear anyway uh so yeah no cake no cake still doing good though still doing good weight is still coming off there was a lot of weight to come off a lot of a lot of uh flabby 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 old flab flab so um i won't be as warm this winter because as we know flab is really just there to keep you to keep you warm through winter but i won't have enough uh but i still got i, I just want to get healthy that's really what i want to do and i realize my legs are good because i because I walk, um, I walk, I worked it out a little while ago. I walk every year the distance of between London and Baghdad. That's how far I walk every, every year. I do about, uh, I think it's about half a, half a million steps a month, I think is what I'm on at the moment, which is good, but my upper half is useless. And I was like, what am I going to do? Because I don't want to go into gym. And uh, oh, uh, welcome to the extra mile, the unscripted, unedited bit. Don't worry, we've got some quiz questions in a bit, and then we'll do some extra stuff. But we have a little waffle at the start. Um, I don't like going to the gym because it's all full of assholes. You have those assholes who've like gone out and they bought their expensive lycra stuff and their expensive trainers, and they're all about, oh, look at me. And you always get that prick who gets on the running machine, and he, they do that speed thing where they do one minute at an excessive pace, and then they get off and go, <gasps> and they sweat everywhere, and it's all about oh look at me i'm a twat i hate that kind of shit so here's a good exercise tip for you i've been using two tins of sweet corn so two big tins of sweet corn and i do uh 50 reps over my head 50 reps to the side 50 reps in a swimming position three uh 50 reps behind i do that in the morning and at lunchtime and then tea time and then just before i go to bed so uh so that's about a thousand reps with those a day and it's it's you, you do it while you're making a cup of tea or something like that because it's quick to do and it it's it's getting there i think my arms are starting to tone up a bit the only reason i want to do that is because a you need to have better i want to have better upper body strength which i don't really have but also you know my legs are good but the upper half is is now looking at a a bit flabby because all the fat's coming off and therefore the skin is kind of just hanging there it, eva still loves it she she you know she makes me strip and she stands there and she goes oh, 
oh, ah, me a piece of that. And then she throws up, which I hope isn't because of me. It's normally is because of all the vodka. But, you know, you know what she's like. Anyway, um, oh, thank you to uh, two new patron supporters. So uh, thank you, Robin Pointer. So thank you very much. Um, thank you to Darth. Hope, hope, hope that's not the... Uh, Darth Vader you don't you don't know you never really know do you and then and then someone who just calls himself the one so thank you Robin thank you Darth and thank you the because your first name will be the so I can't call you the one because one is clear your surname um uh, thank you also to uh Gloria Wrighton uh, who sent a very kind donation via the uh, Murder Mile uh facebook there's a, a, a not facebook though my webpage there's a donation thing on there note to self I must check um the supporter app sorry if anyone does send me a donation on the supporter app it's very kind of you and i really do appreciate it but um because it's powered by acast they don't inform us of this at all at all so you have to you have to go into the website and then you have to go into one drop down box and then you have to go right to the bottom where it goes supporter app which is almost impossible to find and then you have to go searching for it elsewhere it's a real pain in the ass and they don't send you an email to say you've had a nice donation whereas through my website because i built it it comes straight to me and it says there's a donation and then i can email you back and say thank you supporter app i'm gonna to have to check it today i haven't checked it in a while so sorry about that so if you have sent through a donation through that i'm sorry if i haven't said thank you yet um let's do some quiz questions so get ready folks let's see how many you can do uh question number one what building currently stands at 47 fifth street question number two what was elaine's birth name Question number three, what three minor convictions did she have? Question number four, what was the name of her husband? Question number five, what cinema did she work at? Question number six, how much did Ronnie earn per week as a labourer? There's a little rat outside, a little tiny dog making rat sounds get a proper dog question number seven how much did elaine earn per week as a stripper question number eight what was the name of the striptease that ronnie it is said had taken her to initially question number nine uh what had she eaten and drank all day and question number 10 what hospital was ronnie taken to so let's dive into some uh, stuff. Uh, don't forget, I haven't edited this yet, so um, I may edit out the bits where that question is relating to that, or I may balls up that bit of the question. But because this bit isn't edited uh, deliberately, uh, I'm not, if I do make cock it up, I'm not going to take it out of the episode. So there we go. Um, to Ronnie, uh, full name Ronald Leonard Cross. He was 20 uh born uh it's kind of spring 1939 he was a builder's laborer um her nickname for him was potter but we don't know why no idea at all uh six feet three inches tall slim boyish face dark hair uh although in court he was described by the judge as a worthless creature who was willing to live on her earnings and treated her like an oriental chattel um 
we don't really know much about him. We know he's got a brother called uh, Edward. He's got a father called Edward, and he's uh, I think he's got a sister called Elaine, uh, Eileen as well. But that's all we really know. But really, was there wasn't much in in the file at all about him. Um, that day, as mentioned, it had been quite an ordinary day. He'd got he kind of got the day of the murder. He'd got a job on the Tuesday, so three days before he'd got a job on a building site. Uh, but even at that point, she's kind of saying to him, why aren't you getting up? Why aren't you going out and doing your job? And he just can't be asked anymore. I think we don't really know much about him. We don't know much about his background. We don't know whether he's got a criminal record. We don't. There was no witness statements from anyone saying anything positive about him or negative about him. So we really don't know that much about him. We don't know what his motives are, but he... It seemed to be, according to her, that uh, by the time that she was earning more money than he was as a stripper, that he decided, you know, to quit. Which, which is kind of... When you think about the money they were making, Joe, you know, with both of them, even though she was a cinema usher on... I think she was on four... I think it was £4.7 shillings. So that would have been... Uh, a relatively not bad wage for both of them they, they could have survived on that but um living off just one wage it just doesn't make any sense at all it really doesn't um what have we got what have we got what do we got um the, the the this is just not in any particular order this is just how i've kind of put things out i'm not going to say too much about about the prior to the murder because we kind of covered that heavily uh we'll cover the bits around the kind of the discovery of the body because a lot of that I, I kind of shortened down to kind of make it make it flow better as a, uh, an, an episode um but on the day of the the offense she stated that she had uh, drank some alcohol uh and some uh prelidin uh which was as mentioned in the episode was a stimulant drug first synthesized in 1952 and originally used as an appetite suppressant uh, this was withdrawn from the market in the 1980s due to due to widespread abuse mm, that sounds really weird a drug being marketed by the drugs companies and then uh, widespread abuse well there we go that hasn't happened in any other countries has it so yeah that was uh she was on that but it was a uh, uh, an appetite suppressant but also she's trying to find she's trying to find ways to get her, get herself through the day also it's kind of, when you think I, I the reason why i mentioned that in there is because she's she was clearly very conscious of her weight and her size and you know she's quite a shy person and she's on stage stripping and having men ogle her body and yet at the same time she's con she's conscious of how she looks so she's this isn't just something that she's she's shy of doing. This is something that she's she's very nervous uh, about her body, and yet she, in order to make money for both of them, she's kind of having men ogling and and judging her body, which is kind of something. That it, it shows how it's something that she really didn't want to do. Um, uh, re returning home, so I'll try and read much of this. Don't forget, she changes uh, bits and pieces here and there, so uh, it won't be a consistent. Um, statement she said I, I went to the club and returned home at 12 15 a.m and walked straight into the kitchen to see if he had cooked a meal for me as he had promised when i walked into the kitchen i saw there was no meal so i went into the front room which was in darkness the electric light was faulty and sometimes the switch doesn't work i saw ronnie lying on the bed with his clothes on by the light of my lighter which i flicked on i put it out and walked towards the wardrobe and knocked over a bottle of milk and then i started to undress and to wash 
When he was awake and I asked him if he'd been to work, he turned round and said, uh, what do you want to know for? I said, uh, if I'm working, so should you, or are you going to start your old tricks again? By this, I meant not bothering to work. He said, I'm sick. I use this in, in the episode. I replied, the only thing you are sick of is with idleness. Ronnie then called me a bloody bastard as I turned towards him. He jumped up out of the bed and went into the kitchen and then came back again. This is where they started arguing. Uh, they had had an argument. Uh, part of the argument was this. I didn't put it in the episode because it throws it off. But we had an argument over a clock he had got the previous day. And eventually he admitted that his sister had given it to him given him five shillings to buy it this made me cross because he knew that we only had four shillings that day and that extra money could have been used for food we continued to argue about whether he had been paid at work or got a sub during which he called me a few names uh, and then he slapped me around the face and i tried to hit him back but i couldn't reach him as mentioned in the episode she's only about five foot five foot dot and he's six foot three so there's a real height difference there um and don't forget given the fact that he's taller also his reach on his arms are a hell of a lot more as well uh then i walked into the kitchen and went to the drawing the cabinet and took out a knife um when questioned detective superintendent beale said is this the knife elaine said yes that is the one i was going to peel some potatoes and make some chips but ronnie came in behind me uh, so i asked him if he wanted any he said what do you care if i eat or not what a tit uh, we had further words and I tried to hit him with my left hand, uh, but he hit me on the nose and the f uh, forehead. Uh, um, she, um, I use this quote in there as well. She also said, uh, I still had the knife in my other hand. And I said, have you been drinking? He said, yes, I have. And I'm not going to, as I'm not going to sit and wait for you every evening. And then I saw red and struck out with a knife. That's kind of a, one of the things that almost almost convicted her was the fact that she said i struck out with the knife whereas it, it it's not like she said i stabbed him it's like i struck out that's it, it's kind of an an odd phrasing though it doesn't really nail it down uh elaine said uh and then he walked out into the little passageway that's the hall and called elaine elaine the knife went out with him uh and must have been caught up somewhere i.e still on his chest uh but at first I thought he was just falling about. He then called out for Michael uh, and I thought something must be wrong and I walked out into the passage. I saw Ronnie lying on the floor, crouched up and a lot of blood and I realised I must have stabbed him with a knife. So Michael Malloy was a lodger who's mentioned lived in the back room on the ground floor. Uh, there was also Mr and Mrs Hines. His name's Patrick. I can't remember what her name was. I, don't think, I think this is the era where they just didn't list because she's a woman they didn't list her first name she's just mrs hines uh they're in the front room on the ground so uh, just above them um and it was actually michael malloy who'd sublet the basement room um they call her mr and mrs cross but it's actually eileen and ronnie um this was near a way what you could do you could you could rent out two rooms and then you as the rentee the lodger could sublet that room so he had rented out the basement then he'd done it up and he'd rented it out to them even though he's not the lodger see there's all these these are all the pieces that i don't put in the episode because it just confuses everything but he did say i went to bed at 11 15 to 11 30 p.m i went to sleep and i heard a scream as i'd not been feeling myself 
not like that. Uh, I thought I was having a nightmare, so I took no notice. A couple of minutes later, I heard Mrs. Cross, that's Elaine, that's what he calls her, calling me hysterically, and I thought something was wrong. Uh, I went to the basement where I found Mr. Cross, that's Ronnie, lying at the bottom of the stairs. His feet were at the bottom of the stairs and his head towards the door of the kitchen. There was a light on in the kitchen. There was no light on in the bed sitting room. He was dressed in trousers and a shirt and was lying on his stomach. I turned him over and saw blood. Mrs. Cross, Elaine, uh, was kneeling over Mr. Cross. When I first saw them, she was very hysterical and kept calling him Potter. Um... She was only wearing a jumper. Um, uh, Mrs. Cross was very excited and in trying to find where the blood was coming from, she tore the shirt off completely. I then found a wound on his left side. Uh, it's actually kind of more mid, upper middle, so just near the heartish. Uh, and this chap had been, I said this chap had been stabbed, but she made no comment. Uh, I asked her to fetch something to dress the wound. She went to the bedroom, but... As the light there wasn't working, she couldn't find anything. So I went to my room and collected some clean underpants to dress the wound. Well, there you go. I bet it's glad that they were clean. Uh, I arranged for Mrs. Hines. Uh, I arranged with Mrs. Hines to, to call for an ambulance. They kind of did what they did there, and there was kind of. Uh, I won't go into Patrick turned up. Patrick Hines, who was the guy on the ground ground floor, he came down. He, he was kind of like, "Is everything okay?" And he saw the blood, and he saw the knife there, and all this. So he was kind of one, a second witness who could back up what Michael had seen. Um, but obviously, because an ambulance was called, the ambulance turned up before the police had arrived, and because this was really seen as a domestic, and because Ronnie was still alive. Therefore, the police, uh, the ambulance took Ronnie away. But and because she was his girlfriend, she went with them. So she hadn't been arrested by that point because they couldn't really, couldn't really prove anything. Uh, but they had got access to the scene. Um, Ronnie was gasping for breath and he'd been stabbed under the left nipple. Robert Hunt, the ambulance driver, asked her what happened. At first, she said she didn't know. Then she said, I'll tell you later. She used that a couple of times throughout. And then third, in the ambulance, she said he was playing with a knife and there was an accident. So you can see at this point, she's really starting to panic and she doesn't really know what she's doing. Uh, PC Adams and PC Somerville arrived at the scene at about 12.40 a.m. Uh, Mr. Cross was being carried to the ambulance. Mrs. Cross was on the path crying. Before the ambulance left, I asked her what happened and she said, I don't know, I didn't see. Uh, what did PC? That's fine. Uh, PC Somerville went in and looked at the scene. Um, she'd said that she was going to cook a, a meal and was peeling some potatoes. Uh, we then messed around for a bit. This is what Elaine said. After that, he called for Michael, and I called for Michael too. Um, he noted that on in the scene, um, he saw no food out and no potato peelings in the sink which you would have expected if she was going to peel some potatoes, but maybe she hadn't peeled the potatoes yet. Uh, Detective Inspector Donaldson said that there was a brown carrier bag of potatoes and there was no, there, there was some food in the cupboard, but not much. In fact, he used the words very little. Uh, Cynthia Lucas was the hospital doctor. Uh, she said at roughly 1am, 1, 1 uh, she examined him. He had a stab wound to the chest, a small incision about half an inch long on the left-hand side. Uh, but he was already dead. There were no other injuries. Uh, 
Doctor, also while she was there, she examined Elaine. Uh, she couldn't see many injuries. Obviously, the bruises were starting to come through and she was still wearing clothes. So most of the bruises were on her body. But she said she was very hysterical and I saw some blood on her foot and leg. Uh, later examined, she had a bruise on her left forearm. So that's probably a defensive wound. She also had a tender bruise over the bridge of the nose. In hospital, Dr. Lucas, Lucas said uh, Elaine to Elaine that Ronald was dead. Again, she became hysterical and kept saying, it can't be, it can't be. Um, she was like that pretty much throughout. Detective Superintendent James Beale uh, took her back to Bow Police Station, not to be confused with Bow Street Police Station. Bow Street Police Station is just off Covent Garden. Bow Police Station is in East London. Uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, uh, D.S. Beale saw the body at uh, the mortuary. Um, Dr. F.E. Camps conducted the mortuary. This, uh, it was taken uh, at 1.30 p.m. the next day, so that's 12 hours after the murder. Uh, he said there were superficial scratches on Ronald's body, two on the right-hand side of his upper chest, one in his left armpit, uh, two just above the midway between the nipples, and he had a stabway, a, a stabway, a stab between the left, kind of midway between his chest but kind of more on the left hand side uh the stab wound passed between the ribs it went through the end of the heart and part of one of the valves with a total depth of four inches and internal bleeding into the left hand side of the cavity was the cause of death um the knife's blade itself was only three inches long so considerable force had been used but when questioned as mentioned in the episode he said but if at the time the body was moving forwards at the same time i.e ronald was running towards her or moving towards her to attack her it does not need a great deal of force it is little more than just an ordinary push uh what else we got as mentioned in the episode no alcohol was detected in his blood or urine but because this sample had been taken 12 hours later and alcohol is destroyed at a rate of three quarters of a pint per hour depending on how much he drank and when he'd last finished drinking this is 12 hours later so most of the alcohol would have gone out of his system uh they hadn't got very very specific ways of like obviously now we can detect minute traces back then it was just like an alcohol level uh, there were no visible traces on the knife. PC Somerville said it looked like it had been washed, but there was still fingerprints on there, uh, possibly, possibly from where it had been wiped. So it hadn't been washed; it had been wiped. Um, and his shirt was found at the scene. Ronald's shirt; it was uh, badly bloodstained and ripped at the front. Uh, let's see what else we've got. What else we got? I think we're getting close. She was admitted to Holloway Prison on the 25th of April 1960. As mentioned, medical assessment, uh, no history of psychiatric mental uh, diseases, no epilepsy, no blackouts. This is something they always check for in uh, when they're doing the medical assessments, because a lot of people use the idea of, oh, do you know, I, I was in the room and then suddenly I don't remember anything. And it was like, well, do you know, was it a, was it a blackout? Was it epilepsy or anything like that? She wasn't. She was just an ordinary ordinary person who'd just been pushed to as everybody has breaking points don't they and that was her breaking point her dream she got a dream her whole life of a nice husband and a nice house and having babies and living a lovely life do you know nothing nothing expensive not not fancy holidays and posh cars she just wanted to she just she hadn't got much she'd come from nothing she just wanted to have a a, a, a nice simple good life 
and um, that had kind of been taken from her and that that was her breaking point really also kind of although her family would say that he was never abusive to her when they when she was medically assessed as mentioned they said there was extensive bruising to the left hand side of her forehead upper chest upper arms both thighs and lower legs uh, she complained of tenderness to the nose uh, all of these injuries were recent within the time frame, frame of the incident but they also found quite a few uh, injuries that were um, older as well um, she was considered below the average intelligence but not enough to warrant the mental deficiency act uh, obviously that's all because of lack of education because she's been moved around a lot her temperament uh, was impulsive and emotional but she got on well with the other inmates and she's not shown any evidence of undue aggression or of being quarrelsome she is sensitive about the way in which she was reared uh, so that's kind of a, a big thing for her uh trial we did the trial we dealt with that um one thing we didn't put in there is um as far as i could tell she was still I couldn't find a death certificate. She was still technically alive at the start of the 2000s, living in Sale in Cheshire. Coot outside is, is getting mouthy. Uh, and Ronald was buried in Step Stepney on the 2nd of April 1960 at uh, Tower Hamlets Cemetery Park. Um, I think that's it. I think that's it, folks. I think that's it. Ooh, I get to go off to a coffee shop and have a coffee. Hopefully it's not going to be full of little bastards little bastards running around oh it's a saturday can't we have like as day off for everyone can't we have like a saturday you just get all kids and you just put them in prison you put them in prison for the day you teach them a lesson you go if you're not well behaved you'll you'll end up in prison and then that means everyone for a whole saturday includes parents as well get to just have a nice day off like with with no noise, no child noise, which, as we all know, is the worst noise in the world. You can have nails scraping down a board. That's horrible. But the sound of a child, that's the worst sound in the world. Uh, <laughs> so uh, let's do some quiz questions. It's just a joke, people. It's just a joke. I know I know. someone might know. Good. Oh, how dare he say that to children? How dare he say that about my children? I've never met your children. I've no idea what your children... I'm sure your children are nice they're not um <laughs> people get really uptight about shit this is just a bit of fun folks just a bit of fun it's all this all is people get really uptight about just simple things don't they and you just think grow up just just enjoy life that's what i'm trying to do is enjoy life have fun people just get so het up about shit oh um so let's do some quiz questions. Uh, let's see how well you did uh question number one what building currently stands at 47 fifth street it is Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club. Welcome to Jazz Club. Nice. I was going to put some of those in, some some clips from uh, Fast Show of, of uh, Jazz Club. Because so I wanted some of those little clips of, uh, of him going, nice, great. But um, there's laughter all over it, so it wouldn't have worked. I, could, I, I haven't edited this yet, so I haven't decided to do that. Maybe I will. I probably won't. Uh, question number two. What was Elaine's birth name? As far as we know, it was Elaine Barkworth, but um, might not be true. Uh, question number three. What three minor convictions did she have? She had a theft for a coat and stockings. She had a breach of probation and the use of insulting words. Well, well, well. Uh, question number four. What was the name of her husband? 
If you said Ronnie, that is incorrect because they weren't married. It was Carl G. Baker. Question number five. What cinema did she work at? It's the Troxy on a commercial road, which uh, uh, ages ago, myself and uh, Adam from UK True Crime did a, a, a show there, which uh, and lots of people there, but thinking back on it, it wasn't very good. It wasn't a very good show. It was a bit badly, badly disorganised. It really was. Uh, question number six. How much did Ronnie earn per week as a labourer? It was £11. How much did Elaine earn per week as a stripper? It was £12. What was the name of the striptease Ronnie was said to have taken her to initially? Uh, it was uh, the Tropicana Club. Some people called it Freddy's Tropicana Club. Um, number Question number nine. What had she eaten and drank all day? It was a sandwich and a cup of tea. And question number 10. What hospital was Ronnie taken to? It was Mile End Hospital. So that's it, folks. That's all done. I hope you enjoyed that. That was uh, this week's episode of Murder Mile. I'm going to go off now and do uh, some more research. I've got to research these next three episodes. I think it's three. Uh, as I've already done the final three to take us through to Christmas. So uh, I don't know when this is going out, but this is the 14th of October now. So I'm getting myself ahead of the game so I can enjoy Christmas. Anyway, have yourself a good week, folks. Stay safe and be good. And thank you for supporting the show. Lots of love. Bye. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.